Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Hostility and humiliation. Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. I'm sure none of you have ever had that, where you've been very, very hostile, only to find yourself later to be humiliated because you were wrong about whatever it is that made you angry. But have you ever had one of those moments where you responded to someone in anger, accusing them of being wrong, going at them, and then only to be corrected and then feel humiliated afterwards? It's not a fun feeling. Or maybe you were the one accused and compelled to correct that person's error and finding vindication when they learned that that they were wrong. In any case, when we respond with hostility in any situation, we open ourselves up to humiliation if we're not careful. In last week's passage, Luke 10, 1 through 9, Jesus was confronted with a question that many people wonder. Remember, you might remember that question is, is do those who suffer from sickness, disease, accidents, and tragedy, do those who suffer such things, does that indicate that they are greater sinners than anyone else? And are they deserving of the adversity and calamity? And Jesus, we saw last week, clearly and concisely answered those speculations by stating that everyone is a sinner and that all will perish. No one will escape the final day of judgment before the Lord of all creation. Our only recourse is to repent or perish. This week, as we come to Luke chapter 13, verses 10... Luke gives an example of the hostility of a religious leader, a religious ruler in the synagogue that leads them to seek the death of Christ as he takes it upon himself to heal a woman suffering from a long-term disability on the Sabbath. With that, we're going to read that whole passage, Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. It's on the monitor if you need it. Again, hopefully you brought your Bibles. Luke writes, Now when Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you have been freed or you are freed from your disability. And then he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it into the water or lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, immortalized for us in the pages of Scripture, that we may open them and read them and hear them this morning, and then do the work of observing, interpreting, and applying them to our lives. I thank you for this woman. Her name is unknown. The rest of her life is unknown. 
but she plays a part in this drama, Lord, that's to be a, a, an encouragement and also a lesson for us. And we just pray that you help us as we do that work, that your spirit would have free reign. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we read Luke's account, we're going to see four responses, right, as we read this passage of this miraculous healing on the Sabbath. One, you see compassion, Jesus looking on compassion with her. You see worship, the woman worshiping as in response. You see the anger of the ruler, but then you see the acceptance of the crowd as Jesus does heal on the, on the Sabbath. But I want to take a moment and consider four, four other observations in this passage. So with that, let's just get right into it first. The first observation is Jesus demonstrates his divinity, his divinity once again, and his compassion as he interrupts his teaching to heal a disabled woman in the audience. And this time, it's not someone else interrupting that. Jesus, we've seen that as he was teaching and walking. He was interrupted very often by those who were seeking help. But here he is, he's teaching maybe very much like I do, maybe though setting down. And he's looking around the crowd and all of a sudden, he sees this woman and it brings him to compassion. He truly, truly sees her. Now, now he's not Caesar, but sees her, just, just in case there, there's no royalty there at that moment. But what we're seeing here is that in the midst of his teaching, in his divinity, he sees her much different than I see you. He is the one who has created her. He is the one who has formed her. He is the one who has planned every moment of her life. Even the disability that she carries is something that is predetermined by God. And in here, Jesus, when he began to teach, knew that she was going to be there. This is no incident or accident that they're here at the same time. Placed in this village, in that time of history, we see divine encounter as Jesus shows compassion on the woman he had created for this special moment. Jesus now is in a local synagogue as we see a change of venue. He's not walking on the way to Jerusalem. He's taking a break on his way to Jerusalem and he's teaching among a group of people in a synagogue. Teaching on the Sabbath. That's something that it was his habit to do. Now we're not told what village or town this took place, but it was Jesus' habit to stop on the towns and villages and to teach if invited to do so. And typically he was to teach and preach about the coming of the kingdom of God. And while speaking, he notices a woman who's been suffering from a disability that causes her to be bent over and not being able to stand up straight. Now, you can imagine how terrible this was. I'll have to admit that I'm at the age that there are times when I get down with the kids that I do walk around and I have to take a few minutes and slowly walk and work myself back up. You, You probably understand this, Rick, where we have to get our back back in there. But this woman, it wasn't a temporary solution or a temporary condition. She had had it for 18 long years. And you could imagine the pain and the suffering that she is undergoing through this time. Especially as we think of the day and age where where people would say that she must be a sinner. It might have prevented her from doing her regular work as a mother, as a wife, spouse, in the village with the other women, women. Taking compassion on her condition, he interrupts his teaching and calls her to come up and pronounces words that she probably thought that she would never hear and experience a healing that was totally unexpected. 
John MacArthur notes that her healing was actually unsolicited. And that Jesus is the one that take, took initiative. As in most cases, it's, it's God who takes the initiative to heal, to save. Jesus does so here. Furthermore, John MacArthur notes that there was no special faith was required on her part or anyone else. Jesus sometimes called for faith on the, on the response of the hearer, the one that was going to receive a miracle, but many times he did not. She wasn't there. She might have been there looking for healing, but it, it's not like she was raising her hands. It's not like she was crying out, Oh, David, can you, or son of David, have mercy on me. She's probably in the back just listening to the teaching of Christ when all of a sudden her attention is arrested as Jesus says, Come up here. You can imagine that probably was the longest walk of her life. Bent over, crippled, every eye all of a sudden now focused on her as she slowly makes her way up in the synagogue. Probably not a big building, but still, you could imagine the long walk that might have been as everyone's looking, wondering, what in the world is about to happen here? We also observe that Jesus touches her. We've spoken on this before. And I think this is a point that many times we just overlook when we're reading through these passages quickly. Jesus would reach out many times and touch those that were considered unclean, uh, uh, outcast and untouchable. And this, this woman definitely would have been, 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 been thought of as one of those. She would have been with the beggars and the lepers. Someone who is disabled, and we're going to see here that she's disabled by a spirit. But yet Jesus has compassion and it leads him to make a personal connection with those he ministered to. And in this case, it's, it's making eye contact and, and bringing her up and personally touching her. Now that he would touch a woman, especially one that might be suspected of being oppressed by a demon or one who would, uh, who would have been considered a sinner because of her disability, would have been very countercultural. Again, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible is not misogynist or sexist towards women. Many people will bring that up today. Yet scripture in women in scripture, excuse me, are respected, they are recognized and ministered to as well as involved in ministry. Many of the earlier converts and supporters of both Jesus and the apostles uh, ministries were women. And so let me share with you is there is a wonderful place in scripture and God's family to women. We also notice that the healing is instant immediately and she begins immediately to worship worship him as she all of a sudden stands completely all right up upright excuse me with no pain after 18 years you can imagine the ooze the gas the, the just maybe even the speechless of the people the woman probably beginning in tears at first not even thinking should i try to stand as jesus tells her to straighten up her not understanding what's happening as he touches her. Maybe she recoils at first, but then she feels that embrace and he begins to raise her up. What a miraculous event that's immediately, and again, this is so much different than what we see today with faith healers and those who proclaim they can heal. It's immediate. It is instant. It is 
final, she doesn't go back to that, to that to condition afterwards. And not only that, it always leads to worship. When you read scripture, is that when you are touched by Jesus, it leads to worship. Why do we gather here and sing and pray and read scripture? Because you and I have been touched by Christ. The Holy Spirit, the wind has blew and we have been regenerated and we're here to worship as we should do each and every day because Christ has touched us. This great old song, I don't remember all of it, but he touched me. What a wonderful song. Secondly, we notice here, and I marked this down. If you're taking notes, you want to get this. We notice that even demons attend church. Even demons attend church. Now, I know some of you, some of you wives are starting to elbow your husband or your spouse. Don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. But Luke notes that this disability was caused by a supernatural demonic oppression. This was not some illness that she had. It wasn't an accident that she had and that made her to be bent over and crippled. No, it was demonic oppression. And that demon actually leads her and lets her and allows her to go to church. You can imagine as she's sitting there and listening and maybe that demon, she's not demon possessed, but she's oppressed in some form or fashion by this demon. That's a hard thing for us to consider, but yet we see this. You can almost imagine when the demon's thoughts as Jesus is teaching and it's just saying, this is just garbage. We need to get out of here. And then all of a sudden when he calls her up, those demons said, oh no, what's going on? What's, what's, What's happening here? We don't know anything else about why she had been tormented for 18 years by this demon. We're not told why she was chosen by this demon to be oppressed and disabled. We don't know anything else about her. We don't know her name, her village, whether she had a husband, a family, children. All we know is that she was a daughter of Abraham, meaning that she was a Jew. She was a daughter of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it seems that some illnesses in those days, as we read scripture, was caused by demonic oppression, by the oppression of Satan and his hordes. You and I might recall the suffering of Job in the Old Testament, his suffering and disabilities and his, 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 the things that were happening was because of Satan's oppression. Now, I want to say this very quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. That doesn't mean that every illness, sickness, or disability today is caused by demonic activity. There seems to be in those days, especially in the first century, that there was a lot of demonic activity, especially in, in, in Israel. Most likely because of the upcoming incarnation of Christ and during those years, knowing that he was there, there was more activity. Of course, we also know that it comes for the glory of God. Some have created a cottage industry by developing ministries that are focused on identifying demons of oppression so that they may cast them out. We used to have a ministry like that was here in this church, uh, separate from us. It created a lot of turmoil. And what their object is, is if you have depression, then there's a spirit of depression. If you you have a lame foot, you must have a, a, there must be a, a demon of that. There's even demons that if you have uh, problems with your electronics or with your speakers, there's actually demons that you can go online and find out what demon you're to call out and say, come out of my TV, come out of my speakers. And we've been sending our iPads and iPhones to people to fix for years. And all you needed to do was find out the name of the demon and just cast them out. So we need to be very, very careful. 
because that can lead to dangerous roads, and it's very unbiblical and unscriptural. But in those days, there were oppressions by demons. Doesn't mean that it does not happen today, but we need to be very careful about adopting those types of things. You see, Jesus had already answered these types of things. It can be uh, unhealthy and unbiblical to become an obsession on demons. In reflection from last week's passage on the question of whether people suffer due to their sins, we might ask of this woman if she was a greater sinner because she, and deserved what she was getting by the suppression of the demon. However, Jesus answers that we are all sinners and that disabilities and tragedies and catastrophes are all a result of humanity's rebellion against the holy God. Yet we also learn from John 9 that in all these things, God is glorified. And in this case, Satan may seek to oppress, destroy, and kill. Let me give this to you again. I want you to hear this. Satan may seek to oppress, destroy, and kill today even. However, Jesus comes to liberate, to heal, and to give life to all those who repent of their sin and turn and trust in him. Amen? You and I must understand this truth. No matter what Satan does, Jesus is Lord over Satan and his demonic horde. I was listening, this is this has nothing to do with the message. Well, just a tad. So I gotta say it. I was listening to a song by uh, Ross King, and I think I might have given a playlist to some of you. And he's writing, he's singing a song, he wrote it, and it's on my way to work. And I and it was just an interesting song. And he's talking about all the things that I'm afraid of, you know. All these things I'm afraid of, they, they paralyze me, they, they keep me down. But he says, then I realize that even when I'm walking through the shadow of death, that the things that I'm afraid of are afraid of you. What a wonderful word of victory is that Jesus is Lord over all things, over all creation. Thirdly, Let's recognize that no matter what Satan does, Jesus is Lord over Satan and his demons. Thirdly, Jesus cannot seem to avoid conflict with the religious leaders. It doesn't matter what Jesus is doing. Conflict is coming. The Sabbath now was a very uh, great point of contention, division, and controversy during Jesus' earthly ministry. Whether it was his disciples eating grain in the field, remember that? They were taking grain. They were hungry. Uh, to his healing of the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, or this encounter with the woman. Luke describes that the ruler's reaction to the healing of this woman was indignant, meaning that he was pained. He was angry and vexed. He was cut to the heart. He, he took this very personally, that Jesus would dare to heal this woman on the Sabbath day in his synagogue. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a very harsh response. Jesus responded by stating that the man cared more for animals than even human life. What causes someone to be so angry and upset that they would rather see someone experience pain and suffering, even if for one more day they could be healed, or, or, or even if for one more day they'd be immediately healed? We have that type of, we have that type of thing going on today. There are people that would rather see babies in the womb be wiped out. But don't you dare touch a puppy or a lion cub or a spotted owl. 
It's just backwards. We have the same thought today. This man, this ruler, would rather that woman suffer one more day. We would hope that even the most hardened of hearts would relent in giving grace, peace, and relief to those who suffered. Yet it's not to be on that day. Now, you might recall that this attitude was not limited to the ruler of this synagogue. Back in Luke 6, Jesus showed compassion in healing a man on the Sabbath. Remember the man with the withered hand. If you want to go back to Luke 6, looking back at that chapter, we read in verse 9. When Jesus is there, the, the, the Pharisees, the picture is the Pharisees, the religious leaders are standing around and they're watching to see what Jesus is going to do. Their question, is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath day? And they're just waiting there with bated breath. What will he do? What will he do? And so Jesus, knowing their heart, says in verse 9 of chapter 6, I ask you, asking them, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy? Simple question. Simple question. One that seems to be answered in the affirmative. Of course, it's lawful on the Sabbath to do good to someone and, and, to, 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 uh, and to save life, if at all possible. Of course, we value life. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to see the dignity of everyone who is created in the image of God. But look at verse 11 at their response to Jesus' question. But they were filled with fury and they discussed one another what they might do to Jesus. So hard hearted. Jesus had already declared to these heartless religious leaders that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one that has created it. He is the one who could decide what he does on it. And he has the right and the power and the authority as the Lord of the Sabbath to minister as the Father leads him to. Remember, Jesus is doing the Father's will. Jesus did nothing that the Father had not told him to do. Their argument really isn't with Jesus. Their argument is with the Father, Yahweh himself. Robert Stein, in the New American Commentary, notes this. You'll see it here, I believe, on the monitor. He says the reason for their hostility vary. At different times, it was due to Jesus' violation of the oral traditions, his association with tax collectors and sinners, his Christological claims and actions about being the Messiah, or his denunciation of the rich and arrogant. Here, he writes, it was the freedom he claimed to do God's work on the Sabbath that provoked their animosity. But you and I have understand, as we've been reading the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus' ministry will create conflict, as we've, as we've already seen. Conflict with religious leaders, conflict with political leaders, conflict between communities, and even between families. To choose to follow Jesus will create conflict. What we're seeing here in this passage is that the synagogue was a symbol of a broken religious system in which they cared more for animals than they did for human beings. It promoted a self-righteousness and a system that would lead them to neglect the needs of one of their own. That woman was not a stranger in the town. Everyone knew her. 
But he's angry that Jesus would dare to heal. Wait one more day. Go do it on Monday. Or for them, Sabbath was Saturday, so it would have been Sunday. Wait one more day. Fourthly, we see that Jesus is vindicated and the religious leaders humiliated as the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, what's interesting is that the ruler does not address Jesus, the one who heals, but he directs his rebuke against the people. In other words, he could tell here that the people were enjoying what Jesus did. They were excited. They were interested. Look with me at Luke chapter 13. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus healed in the Sabbath, said to Jesus... No. He doesn't turn and address Jesus. He knows that there's nothing he can do about Jesus. Jesus is healing. He knew that something special was about Jesus. So he's going to tear down and reprimand the people who are watching. The people who are just the audience. They're, they're just spectating at this point. He says to the people, there are six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. He directs his attention to the people knowing from past experience that he was not going to get anywhere with Jesus. He directs his attention to the congregation. He pronounces a word of correction to them. However, it seems to backfire as Jesus points out the lack of humanity of the ruler. Jesus then says, wait a second, you're willing to untie an ox or donkey and give him water on the Sabbath? Why, why, Why wouldn't you do this to the daughter of Abraham? The people may be hearing for the very first time the logical fallacy of the religious leaders' religious leaders' uh, requirements, uh, interpretation of law. Finally, recognize that this guy is foolish. They recognize the hardness of their hearts, and maybe for the very first time, they're seeing something different. Jesus is vindicated while the ruler is shamed in front of the congregation because they recognize that the truth is on Jesus' side. Now, this passage, as you just read it, is really pretty short and straight to the point. There's, there's not a lot here that to dig in here and try to find some type of hidden clue about the Christian life. Jesus just directs their mind to the folly, the hypocrisy, and ridiculousness of insisting on keeping man-made laws that actually harm people. This passage teaches them as well as us today, if you're looking for a title today, or not a title, but you're trying to understand what this means, is all that we're seeing here is the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. When Jesus said, I'm the Lord of Sabbath, he was saying, who is it for, or what, what, who, who is in control of it? Now we're finding the meaning of the Sabbath here. Turn to Exodus chapter 20 and let me explain what I mean about the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. In this chapter, Yahweh has called Moses to come up to the mountain where he will give him the law. And he begins by saying in verse 1, and you can catch up here in a second, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You, have, you shall have no other gods before me. So he says, come up, I have some things to tell you, because I am the man. I am who I am. He then lays out the expectations of the almighty holy God for his chosen people. So join with me in verse 8. 
Exodus chapter 20, as we read Yahweh's instructions, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, excuse me, you or your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. So that, that would be a foreigner who's, who's living in their gates in their home. He says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this codifies Yahweh's example in Genesis after creation. Look here in the monitor, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. John MacArthur writes that in declaring the seventh day holy, what Yahweh is doing is establishing the pattern of man's work cycle. He only, and he only modeled the need for rest. God made it holy or set apart the, the Sabbath day because he rested in it. Later it was set aside for a day of worship in the Mosaic law and it distinguishes between the physical rest and the redemptive rest to which it pointed. We understand that that rest that it pointed to was just a shadow. It points to the rest that we find in Christ. But what we understand is that God is giving man six days to work and on that day you are to rest and worship me. The ESV study Bible notes that these words provide the basis for the obligation that God had placed on the Israelites to rest from their normal labor on the Sabbath day. Well, it might be normal labor. Well, if you were working the fields, it would be plowing, it would reaping, sowing, those types of things. If you were uh, someone who was a shepherd, you'd be taking care of your sheep. If you build houses, if you sold, those are your normal work Things, the things that you did on your labor. It was a way in which you rested, trusting that God would take care of all these things. It was a time for man to rest from those six days of labor. Labor that we should point out is cursed by God. In Genesis chapter 3, if you're able to turn back there real quickly. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 17, Yahweh declares, because of man's sin... He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. The words of Solomon. Labor, 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 then die and leave it to someone else for enjoy. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What a terrible awful curse but God yet in his mercy set aside one day of the week that he had created for man to recover from his physically mentally and emotionally exhausting work and it's during that time man is to lift up his heart to the God of all creation and give worship now we don't do that just one day a week but it's a time in which we gather together and we rest from our physical work 
Recognizing not only that the curse of sin, that's what we do. This is one of the things that we should be reminded of when we come to church. And when we're on that Sabbath day is we remember the curse of sin. But yet we also remember the mercy of God. That he would allow us to rest. To enjoy our families. To enjoy the creation of God. Without worrying about the task that we need to do during the other six days of the week. It's recognizing the mercies of God and his kindness that he causes all things to grow. However, by the time of Jesus' entry into human history, the religious leaders had morphed the Sabbath commandment or twisted the Sabbath commandment, I should say, into something totally foreign to the word of God. In order to control the people and to justify their own self-righteousness, they had added more requirements and expectations that laid heavy burdens upon the people. In many ways, the day of rest was more exhausting than the other six days of the week. Because it's not as you could just get up and enjoy life. You had to observe and, and, and follow all these rules and regulation. Let me tell you, according to one Jewish resource... The Misha, what we would say the law or the interpretation of the Old Testament, the Torah, lists 39 major type, types of labor that was forbidden on the Sabbath day. The first 11, uh, 11 of these steps were in preparation of bread, plowing, sowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, shifting, kneading, and baking. So those of you who are in the bread making business today, you need to rest today. At least that's what they would say. The next 12 laws applied to the preparation of clothing from the shearing of sheep to the sewing of the cloth, sewing of the cloth. These laws were followed by seven steps in preparing the corpse of a deer for use as food or for leather. The remaining items deal with writing, building, kindling, putting out of fires and carriage of things from one location to another. In addition to these 39 major regulations, there were countless other provisions concerning the observance of the Sabbath. The most known is the Sabbath day journey that you could only go, you could walk no more than two-thirds of a mile. Now to believe you, to be honest, I don't want to walk two-thirds of a mile anyway on a Sabbath day anyway. But however, you could not go more than two-thirds. You couldn't visit somewhere. You couldn't go somewhere to a shop or something of that nature. It was also counted as Sabbath breaking to look on a mirror if it was fixed to the wall or even to light a candle. These are the type of ways that they had manipulated people. Other basic, and you say those are terrible, but you know that there's some today that they've added to it? Even today that they have added, you cannot do any riding, erasing, and tearing. Business transactions, driving or riding in cars or other vehicles, shopping, using the telephone, turning on or off anything that which uses electricity. I guess you can't even do the clapper. Including lights, radios, televisions, computers, air conditioners, and alarm clocks, cooking. Turn your air conditioners on on the day before, before. That's the only way to work it. Cooking, baking, or kindling a fire. Gardening and grass mowing and doing laundry. All of these things are things that they still have added to it that they cannot do. Now, as you can see, this would be very onerous and difficult to maintain. It would be exhausting. 
to wonder as you're working around, can I do this or can I not do this? How can I get around this? What if my baby is hungry? What if she is sick? Can I not go to the doctor? Oh, he's more than two thirds. I can't take the car to take him to the doctor. I can't call some, all these things to be in good standing. <clears throat> Though many of us would probably agree that not doing laundry or other miscellaneous chores is probably a good thing. Be nice. But these regulations, these requirements, these expectations went far beyond what Scripture and what Yahweh expected of his people. The problem is, is that the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath was forgotten, leading these religious leaders and others to pronounce judgment upon any who would disagree or fail in keeping any of these requirements. It would allow them to say, this woman must undergo pain and suffering at least for another day, if not a few hours. One cannot even be, one could even be thrown out of the synagogue and temple worship if they continued in that practice. But in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus has already reminded them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's not the importance of the Sabbath, it's the importance of the man. The mercy isn't given to the day, the mercy of God is given to the man. So what we're seeing here, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The website got questions, comments here, you'll see it here on the monitor, that the Sabbath was intended to help people, not burden them. In contrast with the grueling work, daily work as slaves in Egypt, the Israelites were commanded to take a full day of rest each week under the Mosaic law to remind them once again of what God had delivered them from. But this ruler in this passage shows that he doesn't understand the true requirements of Yahweh. He could have saved himself from his humiliation and tempered his hostility if he had only taken to heart the words of the prophet, Micah 6, 8. And you may want to write this down so you have this later so you can underline it in your Bible. Micah 6, 8. As God is pronouncing judgment on the old prophet, the old Israel, who had, who had abandoned the things of God, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God has required of all of us. This ruler had forgotten this completely. There's no love for him. There's no justice. There's no kindness. There's no desire to walk humbly with God as in showing his indignity, his, his hostility toward Jesus who heals a woman who is suffering. Instead, this ruler, like the rest of the religious leaders of Christ's time, put heavy burdens on the people. Instead of seeking justice, kindness, and leading with humility, Thomas Schreiner notes that the Sabbath is the most fitting day of all to heal because it is a day of rejoicing, a day of freedom, and a day of liberation. It's pointing back to the Lord liberating his people from Egypt. You see, it was proper and right that Jesus, as he is teaching, shows compassion and kindness and justice in healing this poor woman. And scripture did not prevent him from doing so. Among all things, scripture written by him compels him to do into action. The Sabbath restricted man's work, not God's. Get that. The Sabbath restricts man's work not the work of God. 
When it says that God rested, it does not mean that he's out somewhere in some cabana. You know, in between two trees just waving in some hammock. Enjoying a Mai Tai. Is that a drink? Oh, I thought it was a UFC fighting style. Is that a UFC fighting style? Yeah. Is it? That was not in my notes, hence why I'm all over the place. These poor fools had embraced a failed religious system, not of God's making, but had twisted scripture to suit their own self-righteousness and proudful attitudes. This was a wickedness that leads not only to humiliation, but also death as they reject God's proclamation of the kingdom of God, where Jesus, as the Messiah, the Son of God, proclaims liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That ruler will not stop Jesus from healing this woman. The hordes of Satan and demons and the hardness of people's heart will not prevent God from doing the work that he has predetermined to do in your life. Now this is a good reminder to us today to contemplate that loving God does not consist of merely keeping the rules. Let me say it again because I want you to get it. Loving God, as this ruler would say, I'm to love God, is not merely keeping the rules. Unfortunately, we have developed a religious system, even in our own evangelical world, of, 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 of keeping rules. But many times, and I've grown up in this type of environment, where keeping the rules were just as onerous as the sin that I was in. And, and, and typically, just as scripture says, rules and regulations actually lead you to sin. That's what it says. The law actually led you to sin more, the Mosaic law, because our hearts are in rebellion against all authority. And we always desire to go against rules and regulations and requirements. We're always looking for those loopholes, Right? You see, we are called to love God and to love our neighbors, and this ruler did not do that. We recall the warning of James chapter 4, verse 17. I think we were talking about this on Sunday. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That was you, Matthew. That's the verse I said. Don't say that. But this is what we're finding here is that if you and I know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for him it is sin. So for this ruler, he was the one in sin. He was the one who deserved the hostility of a crowd and the humiliation. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5, if you would. In James chapter 5, God commands us to consider, and this is important. And I know as I'm about to preach this, I'm teaching this and preaching this to the crowd, to the choir, so to speak, because you're here. But there are many of you many of our, our members and regular attenders that are not here. But in James 5, God commands us to consider how to stir one another up. Actually, this is in Hebrews, so we're going to go to James 5, but in Hebrews, he says to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. He says, we're not to neglect to meet together at the, has the habit of some as we are called together on the Lord's Day. This is the Christian Sabbath, our Sunday. We are to come together to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
So for you and I, we are to gather like this crowd does so that we may encourage and lift one another up knowing that the day, a final day of judgment is coming soon. We're called to gather and assemble on the first day of the week to worship in the rest that God provides through the work of Jesus Christ. We are gathered to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and encourage one another. Paul writes, and we're going to get to James here in a moment. We draw Paul writes, you see here in the monitor, that to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's speaking to us. He says, teaching and admonishing who? One another. In all wisdom, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here is the context in which we are to do all that. But gathering together as a covenant community committed to our Lord and each other glorifies God. And that's what we're doing this morning. And it's good for the body. Not only are we to sing and pray and read scripture and hear the teaching of God's work or the word of God and respond to the work of the Holy Spirit, but in James chapter 5, here we go, verse 13. You and I are challenged as we come together to meet. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We had that last week when Lupe stood and gave us a wonderful word of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. It is working. What this ruler should have done is when, she, when he saw that woman that was bent over, there should have been a word of prayer for them. Not that they had this word of scripture, they had the Old Testament, but even then, compassion should have been given to that woman. Kindness should have been given to that woman. Not humiliation, not a rebuke. But for you and I, as we come together, you and I bring the other six days in with us, do we not? Some of you are even thinking, oh, wait, when I get home, I got to get prepared for tomorrow. I, that's my mind. I got a busy week. I, I got to figure all these things I got to do. We're wore down maybe from the week before. Or maybe we're just fighting sickness. Our bodies are falling. Sin is showing its way. Maybe we're having some emotional issues, maybe some mental health care issues. And the last thing we want to do is go to church. And our Sundays are just filled with trying just to deal with all things. Let us remember that on Sunday as we come here together, we're not to forget all the pain and the suffering and the turmoil that we experience the other six days and what we're going to, but it's to remind us of the mercies of God who has set aside one day that we may worship him fully as a body and that we may see each other and have compassion. We have people in our church that are hurting from many different things. We have several that are looking for places to live. They need an apartment soon or a home. There's others who are struggling financially. There's some who may not be here because they couldn't afford, you know, $6 a, you know, a gallon. They got to get to work. And so they had to make a choice. And that's a sad choice. There may be some that are just tr uh, struggling, maybe with their kids. Maybe just with sickness and they need help. We need to see that. And as we come together, that's what we are to do. 
And Randy read earlier from Romans 12, and it's 9 through 21 for anyone who wants to write it down and read it later. That's what we do in church, in our Christian life. Let our love be genuine. Show hospitality. Outdo one another in showing love. Let the vengeance be to the Lord, not to us, and to overcome evil with good. This is when we do this. Is here among God's people. One pastor wrote that there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. And OVBC, I want us to be working right. Taking this time to love, to do justice, to do kindness, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let us commit to being a church that shows compassion to each other as we worship the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and serve one another with love. Let it be said that the mercies of God are here and are for your attainment. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and I believe Landon has our pastor's prayer. I'm just going to ask you to take a moment to just pause and consider the words given to you this morning, this passage. And then to pray and ask, how should I respond? Father, have I taken the Sabbath as important as I should? Am I living out the call of Christ in loving others? Or am I living a life in which I'm just trying to please God by keeping rules? Rules lead to death. There are the commands of God and there are things that God has called us to do. And yes, we must do those. But we never find ourselves saved by those things. They have their proper place. So let's put them in the proper place. And we respond this week to the work, Spirit's work in our lives. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.